Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. It is Wednesday, October the 26th, 2022, 7 a.m. here in Spotswood. I hope that all of you are doing just fine this Wednesday morning and that you had a very happy Tuesday and that things are just progressing well this week for you. I'm excited to be back with you this morning. Again, I appreciate your patience while I was out of town but it's good to be back and, and to be rolling. And, and we really are making our way through. Y'all know that John only has the 21 chapters, right? We're in chapter 12 right now. And you might say, well, you know, it kind of took us a while to get through the first 12 chapters and we're not even through chapter 12 yet. And that's true. However, I will point out that things are shifting, right? We are getting it. And, and, and this is, let me be careful how I say this. I don't want to insinuate that the gospel according to John is, is not a narrative telling. Okay, it is. It tells, obviously, the story of Jesus. However, it is in the first half of the book that we see much more theology, many more things come out. By the time, it, it's almost like a roller coaster, right, where it's, it's slow building up and building up. And then once you pass the crest, you know, things really take off. That's what's happening here. That's why we're taking larger portions of the scripture and, and going through them. So we're really going to be making some 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 ground here <clears throat> as we cross this point in the triumphal entry, which is where we started with yesterday. Well, it's where we got to yesterday. We talked really much more about the cost of discipleship, right? About how it wasn't enough anymore for the Pharisees to kill Jesus, said to come after Lazarus too. We talked about how it, it, there is a cost associated with trusting in the Lord, with uh, with following the Lord. But I shared that Jim Elliott quote that that he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But then we touched on the triumphal entry. But it really is the triumphal entry that is that point where things really start to speed up. And we'll be taking larger portions together. So all of that being said, you might be saying, what is the triumphal entry? Well, we're going to talk about that, but let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us, and we ask that you would guide us in it. Help us to see Jesus, to understand your Son and our Savior, to catch the imagery, yes, but also the fulfillment of your word so that we would know, so that we would truly believe that John's testimony is trustworthy, yes, but not only John's testimony here, the whole of your word. Please guide us now, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in my prayer just now, I talked about the Lord helping us to see Jesus that John's testimony would be affirmed and the rest of his word would be affirmed. There's a lot riding on the triumphal entry, really. Um, what we will see in this passage is the fulfillment of Scripture prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But also, more than that, what we see is a transition point in Jesus's public ministry. You know, it's fascinating. And John doesn't do as... Uh, a thorough job of this as we find, like, say, for instance, in Mark, there's a thing going on early in Jesus' ministry that has been referred to as the messianic secret. 
right? Again, Mark really exposes this. I, in my opinion, I think Mark exposes this more than Matthew, Luke, or John. Um, but it's this idea, you remember early on in Jesus's ministry when he would do things and then he would tell people to be quiet about it. Remember the first miracle that he ever performed, the first sign that he gave. Remember what he said to Mary? Back at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, she came to Jesus and basically said, hey, they've run out of wine. He said, woman, my time has not yet come. Right? He's not being rude to his mother. He's talking about entering the public scene, right? The, the public ministry. In Mark, we find things like him casting out demons. And the demons know who Jesus is. It's so fascinating. The demons say, take, for instance, the, the demoniac of the Gerasenes, right? The demon knows who Jesus is. And Jesus says, shut up. Don't tell anybody. He would heal people and he'd tell them not to tell anyone who healed. There's this messianic secret while Jesus is in the background doing the signs, right? And he maintains that. And the longer he goes in his ministry, the more Jesus reveals about himself. Eventually, in Mark chapter 8, he accepts Peter's confession that he is indeed the Christ. But there is still this shroud of secrecy, right, where we find this idea that it's not yet time yet. It's, a, it's not time for Jesus to fully expose himself, to fully come on the scene, as it were, and claim to be the Messiah. Well, that time ends at the triumphal entry. There's hints of it, certainly raising Lazarus from the dead. That uh, was a big-time public sign, but all doubt should be taken away in what we come to today. That's why I said a lot is riding on this. What do we find? Well, imagery-wise, we find something very interesting. It says the next day, this is John chapter 12, verse 12, by the way. John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. All right, so first, Let's talk about the imagery here of the triumphal entry. This is not something unique to Jesus. In fact, this is really an exposition or, or, or a paradigm exposed that had more to do with the Roman Empire than any type of, of, of Jewish or, or Israeli empire or conquest or anything like that. The model of the triumphal entry had been practiced by Rome for some time up to this point. Usually, it involved a general but it could involve the Roman emperor himself. But the whole idea of the Roman Empire is what it is called. Rome is the absolute center of the Roman Empire, was the absolute center of the Roman Empire. Rome would have its military conquest, right? They'd go out and they'd conquer another portion of the world. And then when the conquering general or when the conquering emperor would come back into Rome, the people of Rome would go outside of Rome to meet that conquering general, okay, or that conquering emperor. They would throw down branches, right? They would make a huge fuss over the conqueror coming into his city, his own city. That's what's going on here, culturally speaking, with Jesus. They are viewing Jesus as the arriving conqueror. Now, 
Why? He hasn't conquered anybody, right? There, there has been no, in, in a strictly militaristic, um, on a strictly militaristic basic, let me, basis, let me be clear here. Um, he was on his way to conquer sin and death forever. They didn't know that. In fact, an argument can be made, given what they have said, that they are there for a very specific reason, and some of them are not there for the right reasons. You know, again, pay attention to what they're doing here. They are treating Jesus as a conquering general or as an emperor who has come back into his city after gaining victory. Think about what this is doing in the background. What did we just read yesterday? We know that a large crowd of Jews had found out about Jesus, but we also know that the chief priests are not only going to kill Jesus, they're going to kill Lazarus as well. Think about what this would do to them. The fact that these things are going on. In fact, we'll find out from verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. But the question is, why? Why? Y'all, to say that this is genuine faith would be a mistake. We know that because we're going to find out that at the time of Jesus's ascension and shortly thereafter, there's less than a hundred genuine followers of Christ. So what about the multitudes? Where are these people? Very sadly, the ones that cry out Hosanna, I'm quite certain some of them would cry out, crucify him, crucify him very soon after this. Why? Most likely, now we don't, we don't know what's in their hearts. We just know what's happened. Right? But most likely, this comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really came to do. You remember all along in our study, we've had these moments where people um, either speak of Christ or try to confess Christ, and they keep calling him things like a prophet. We've talked about this before. One of the reasons they refer to Jesus as a prophet is that prophets not— you know, when we think of prophet, we think of somebody that tells us what's going to happen in the future, right? Somebody that prophesies. Most often, the connotation attached to prophets in their time, in biblical times, yes, they did foretell the future, but more importantly, they, they, were, they were there to foretell, to tell forth the truth of God. And prophets usually meant that things were going to be changing, politically speaking, whether it's a Jonah or an Isaiah, certainly a Samuel, right, <laughs> that God sent to anoint a new king. So people have this idea of who Jesus is and who Jesus is supposed to be. And that idea is betrayed in what they say. Let's just analyze it, right? Jesus is coming. They take out the palm branches to signify his victory, right? They went out shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna simply means save. Or more specifically, save now. From whom? Save from what? Well, the best thing we can put together is they wanted to be saved from the Roman Empire. And yet again, people think that Jesus is there on the account of the physical, tangible, dirt land of Israel. He's there for Jerusalem as a city. Now, was he? Yes. But it's the new Jerusalem the new heaven, the new earth. Jesus came for so much more than a plot of land. He came again to defeat death and hell. But they don't recognize that. 
You know, they're part of this group that doesn't believe they need saving from their sins, most of them. Instead, they need saving from Rome. And listen to what else they say. They start out with, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Y'all, again, do you think that they put together some theological hermeneutic of Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's going to reign forever and ever? I think that some of them would have done that. Some of them recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and that indeed his coming was about much more than just Israel. But there are those that are present that want Jesus to destroy Rome, that want him to claim the throne. They want him to be the Christ, the Christ that was spoken of in so much apocalyptic literature, right, that took place between Malachi and Matthew. We've talked about that before. I'm not going to go back down that road. But nevertheless, it's as Jesus said to Peter in Mark chapter 8. Remember, we won't turn back there, but in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, after he said, who do the people say I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah. They say you're one of the prophets. Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter then went on to confess that Jesus is the Christ. But then when Jesus talked about going to Jerusalem and being handed over to the chief priest, when he talked about being tortured, when he talked about being killed and ultimately rise again, you see, Peter missed the ultimately rised again part, and he started to rebuke Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus had to do with Peter? He had to say, get behind me, Satan. Why? He said, because you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. What you see in the triumphal entry is a large group of people, and there are some that come believing, children especially. But there's a whole lot of people there who have in mind not the things of God, but instead the things of men, their own selfish desires. Now, the interesting thing is what Jesus did here. He didn't come in on a chariot. You know, the chariot was the pinnacle of warfare at this time. Didn't come in on a chariot. He didn't come in on some magnificent stallion charger, right? This, this beautiful war horse. No, no. Instead, verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and set upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter Zion, or daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt, seated on an animal that by nature is frail, an animal that is young, pretty much the last beast of burden you would ever use when riding into battle. Jesus is showing forth what he's really there to do, and that is he's showing forth that he is coming as their sacrifice. That's the sacrifice of all who would trust in him. Is this a triumphal entry? Absolutely. Because Jesus is coming to conquer. But is he going to conquer in the way that they think he's going to? No. You see, their vision, their sight was so tragically skewed. The, the, the depth of their vision was so limited that they missed what Jesus could really do. And this is where we need to be careful. You know, one of the temptations that we face 
when reading through God's word. And there's lots of examples. Take, for instance, how we view ancient Israel, right? We look at ancient Israel and we say, what is wrong with those people? Didn't they see? Did, they saw the plagues, for goodness sakes. It, it, food fell from the sky for them every day. And they didn't even see it. They didn't even see it. They didn't trust it. These people got some issues. It's very easy for us to do that. It's very easy for us to look at these people and say, don't they realize, haven't they listened to Jesus? Don't they know that he's there for so much more than just political deliverance for a short time from an empire? If anybody understood that empires rise and fall, it ought to be ancient Israel, right? You have the Babylonians and you have the Persians and it, it's easy for us to look at them and say, boy, they are dense. They were just dummies. They didn't know anything. And yet, how often is our vision just as small? How often do we miss what Jesus is really doing because we're hung up on things that, quite frankly, have no eternal significance? They don't have any bearing on eternity. You know, if you look at the grand luxury, which is actually a judgment and a curse in the American church, we've got time to fight and fuss over things that do not matter. It all comes down to turf and tradition and all the, and I'm not saying that tradition isn't important, y'all. It is important. But when the secondary things become the primary things, we miss out on what the Lord is doing. When our focus becomes those things that don't really matter that much, we take our attention away from the real calling that we have. And we miss what the Lord is doing. And I get it. I, we don't like change. I don't like change. I want things to stay the same all the time. My goodness, my, I've told my daughter that she's not turning 15 this year. She's turning 13. She's going backwards now. I don't like change. I don't like things to be up in the air either. I like everything to be nice and tidy. But the reality is, is that things are only nice and tidy when we keep our eyes set on the Lord Jesus. And when we realize that the things of this earth ought to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So it happens when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, right? So we shouldn't be too hard on these people. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. Our response should be, let's make sure that we're seeing Jesus for who he is. The fact that he didn't come in on a charger but came on on a donkey's colt should have told them he was there for a different reason than they thought. In fact, we know from verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified. In other words, after Jesus was crucified, after he was raised from the dead and glorified, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things that had been written excuse me, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him? 
Now, what's this talking about? Realize that what's going on here is Psalm 118 is in play, Zechariah 9.9, especially with, with your king is coming, seated on donkey's colt. It's then that they realize on the other side of what Jesus does, then they realize why it had to be this way. They realize why Jesus did what he did. They realize that this was about so much more than Israel and Jesus coming into an earthly kingdom. Instead, they realize this is the kingdom of God coming. But right here, right now, they don't get it. They don't get it. Neither does the crowd. Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So that's the crowd that believes. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Y'all, this shows us the Pharisees' despair here. But it also, yet again, shows us the short-sightedness of everything. The prompting for you and me today, now we're going to continue with this, because right after this, it's by no mistake that Jesus is going to triumphantly enter and then right after that, he's going to tell him he's going to die. The challenge for us is to examine ourselves. That's what's going on here. We'll continue tomorrow. But the challenge for us is to evaluate how we view Jesus. The substance of our trust. The motivation of our following him. Do you see Jesus for who he is? Or do you only dwell on what you think he can do for you? Do you love him, beholding his glory? Or are you just looking for an excuse, for an exit, for an uplifting, for a, I don't know. The calling for us is to take Jesus for all of who he is. For it's only in that that we receive all of his benefits. Examine yourself in light of this crowd that has gathered. Are you one of the ones that have gathered around Jesus because like the ones who actually believed you want to tell other people? Or are you one of the ones that are there because of what you think Jesus might do for you? If that's who you are, don't be surprised if you don't find yourself saying, crucify him. Yet it is my prayer for you that you are here that you are following Christ because of who he is, because of the newness of life that he brings, because he transforms, because he is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. We thank you for this, this moment of courage on your son's part as he rode willingly to meet death, and yet this time that was so misunderstood. Oh, Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to love him and trust in him alone. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we will be back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I see Monica. Good morning. And there's Christine and Wayne and Becky and Alice. And there's Rose and Elizabeth. Um, let's see here. And then the other Becky, thank you all so much for being here. And I know that um, that others will be here eventually. Others are watching like Jim and Mary and Jack and Patsy and so many others. Thank you all for your support. 
Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.